We'll hear argument first this morning in case 0960, Karachuri Rosendo versus Holder. Mr. Srinivasan. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Longtime lawful permanent resident aliens with two convictions for minor drug possession offenses are subject to removal from the United States, but they are not categorically ineligible to seek discretionary relief from removal from the Attorney General based on their connections and deep family ties to the country. Categorical ineligibility for discretionary relief arises under the Immigration and Nationality Act when a permanent resident has been, quote, convicted of an aggravated felony, close quote, with the relevant category here, permanent residents who have been, quote, convicted of a felony punishable under the Controlled Substances Act, close quote. Individuals such as petitioner who have been convicted of drug possession, but as to whom there has been no finding of recidivism, have been convicted of a misdemeanor punishable under the Controlled Substances Act rather than a felony. Mr. Bassan, as a threshold question, is there a, a mootness problem here? Because as I understand it, um, the petitioner came back to the country illegally and committed another um, minor um, crime. But his coming back illegally and being uh, turned away again, as I understand the law, means that he cannot get any dispensation as a result of the illegal entry. So even if we were to hold in your favor now, I take it that he could not, he would not have any hope of getting any cancellation of removal or any other dispensation. Is that so? That's not correct, Justice Ginsburg, in our view. And the government, it's notable, doesn't make a mootness argument. And I think the reason they don't is that the in Lopez, this Court understood that the initial removal doesn't annul the ability of an individual to get cancellation. And so, as Your Honor correctly observes, the question would be whether the reentry has an effect on the cancellation and the eligibility for cancellation. And it does not because petitioner was removed again by reinstatement of the original removal order. And so if there's an argument that the initial removal order wasn't good because cancellation should have been granted, that also carries through to the reinstatement. And as a consequence of that procedural context, there is no mootness argument, and I think that's why the government doesn't make, doesn't take that position. So the question before the court. I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying sure. that his, his reentry was not illegal because his removal was illegal. Is that what no, you're saying? No, it's not that his reentry wasn't illegal. It's that when he was then again removed, hit the, the way that that was accomplished was by reinstatement of the original removal order. And so if the original removal order would have been extinguished by grant of a cancellation order, then that carries forward to the reinstatement of the original removal order as well. But Nothing does, additional but happens it, because but, of the reentry. But does it make the, the, the second uh, unlawful entry now lawful? It, it doesn't I, make I, I, thought, I thought it's a separate offense to, to enter, to re-enter improperly. And, and that stays no matter, isn't that correct, regardless of the correctness of the prior removal order? It, it does, Justice Kennedy, but I think, I think the way that gets taken into account is it would be one of the discretionary considerations that the Attorney General could take into account in, in a, determining whether to grant discretionary relief in the same way that the original conviction for drug possession could be taken into account. Our I think also in the picture is that he never contested removability. The only thing was the grace, would, would he qualify for, for discretionary relief by the Attorney General. So the, the 
removal order itself, I take it, would stand. The, the removal order would stand, but if cancellation were granted, then he couldn't be removed pursuant to that removal order, because the, the effect of granting cancellation would be that he's no longer uh, removable. He gets favorable discretionary relief that enables him to stay in the country. And I think the, the predicate of Your Honor's question is correct, that we don't contest removability. He was removable because of his drug possession, uh, drug possession conviction. The question is whether he retains eligibility to seek a favorable exercise of, of relief from the Attorney General based on affirmative equities in his, in his favor, such as his deep family ties to the country, the presence of United States citizen children here, his lack of connections to uh, the country to which he would be removed, his employment history and considerations of that variety. And the question before the Court is whether he and other individuals who are similarly situated should have an opportunity to make that case to the Attorney General. He is removable. The question is whether the Attorney General is in a, is in a position to grant him a favorable exercise of discretion. And we think the Attorney General is, because in order to be categorically ineligible for discretionary relief from removal, a permanent resident alien has to have been convicted of a felony punishable under the Controlled Substances Act. And when you've been convicted of drug possession and there's been no finding of recidivism, you've been convicted of a misdemeanor punishable under what the Controlled Substances Act. What elements would a state conviction have to contain to qualify as a finding of recidivism, in your view? What elements? Yes. What, what would have had to have been determined in a state conviction for you to recognize, under your argument, that it would qualify as a felony under the Controlled Substance Act? Uh, Justice Sotomayor, at the very least, what would have had to have happened is that he would have had to have been found to be a recidivist under a state provision that attaches sentencing consequences to being found to have been a recidivist. And so what you need is an analogous state offense to the federal offense of recidivist possession. Do you know of possession. any state law that is ana analogous to the federal law? Precisely analogous? Well, uh, analogous enough to count in the sense that what you need under the federal law is a finding of recidivism, at least. That's our principal submission. I, that's what I'm and trying to, to get to. What are the elements of that finding? Um, what exactly, because different labels are attached to different crimes that qualify you for recidivism under some state statutes, etc. I'm trying to get you to articulate what finding of recidivism counts? What are the, the underlying? It's a determination by the court. That Which court now? The state? By, by the state convicting court. In the, in, the, in the case of a state conviction, it would be a determination by the state convicting court that the person, in fact, has a prior conviction. And then as a consequence, under the state scheme, a So are you arguing that a state court has to make a finding of a valid prior conviction? Is that it? Yes, in, in the context of a state conviction. It, but it doesn't have to be a state felony. It doesn't have to be a state a felony. felony no. has to be a federal felony. That, that's correct. And that's the work done by, by the words punishable <coughs> under the Control Punishable as a felony under the Federal Act. Right. But this was punishable as a felony because it was his second drug offense. He was a recidivist. And although it was only a misdemeanor under state law, under the Controlled Substances Substances Act, he could be prosecuted for a felony, for a federal felony. I, I don't know why that doesn't fit the statute. But, but, Justice Scalia, he has to have been convicted of the felony, and that's the critical distinction. He may have committed he can't the felony. can't be convicted of a federal felony in a state court. He, he has, has to, to have be been convicted, convicted of a crime. Of a crime 
which may be a misdemeanor, which would subject him to a felony conviction in, in federal court under the Controlled Substances Act. And I think that's, that's what this is. He's convicted of a drug offense. And if the, if, if he were prosecuted in federal court, he would, he was punishable as a felon in was, federal court under the, under the controlled substance. He was not punishable as a felon in federal court for two reasons. First, he was convicted of drug possession. A person in federal court who's convicted of drug possession is a misdemeanor, not a felon, unless and until there's a finding that he's a recidivist. You have to have the finding of recidivist in order for a felony sentence even to conceivably attach to an individual. And you just don't have that in the context of this case where all you have is a conviction of drug possession alone. A felony sentence doesn't even come into the picture unless there's a finding of recidivism. Isn't that didn't the, happen isn't in the, the state crux court. of your argument that for present purposes the term conviction must include a determination of recidivism? For present purposes, that's correct. And, Justice Alito, I think it's important to understand, and this goes to the second response to your question, Justice Scalia, that the statute, the Immigration and Nationality Act, defines conviction in a particular way. It defines conviction as a formal judgment of guilt entered by a court. As Your Honor's opinion for the, for the court in Deal versus United States understood, statutes could define convictions in one of two ways. It could define a conviction as a finding of guilt, or it could define a conviction as the formal judgment based on that finding. Well, what would you say, what do you say about uh, 21 U.S.C. Section 851, the federal recidivism provision, which says no person who stands convicted of an offense under this part shall be sentenced to increased punishment by reason of one or more prior conviction. So under that statute, the conviction does not include the recidivism determination. Isn't that right? Under that statute, different statutes conceive of it different ways, but the applicable definition of conviction here, because we're talking about an immigration consequence, is the definition of conviction under the Immigration and Nationality Act. And that definition is set forth at page 2A of the appendix to our brief, uh, the blue brief, the opening brief. And it's 8 U.S.C. 1101-A48-A. And it says that the term conviction means, with respect to an alien, a formal judgment of guilt of the alien entered by a court. And so the, here you have a formal judgment of guilt as the operative definition of a conviction. And that formal judgment of guilt includes both the adjudication of guilt and the sentence. And so the important point to bear in mind is that at the time that the conviction, as defined by the Immigration and Nationality Act, is entered, we know whether the person has been found to have been a recidivist. At that point, the adjudication of guilt has happened, the sentence has been imposed, and we know whether a finding of recidivism, recidivism has been made. In the absence of such a finding, the maximum sentence that could attach under federal law, Justice Scalia, is a misdemeanor sentence of one year of imprisonment. A felony sentence is not on the table. And if the maximum sentence to which a person is subject is a misdemeanor sentence, the person has been, sub- has, has been convicted of a misdemeanor. They haven't been convicted of a felony. And that- Let's assume we're not talking about immigration consequences. Let's, uh, let's assume we're talking about a, an American citizen who has committed uh, a, a, a misdemeanor drug offense, uh, when, when he is brought up under the Controlled Substances Act, even though he wasn't found to have been uh, uh, a recidivist by the state conviction, couldn't he be prosecuted under the Controlled Substances Act for a felony because, in fact, he is a recidivist? Oh, sure, but, but, but I, think we're, I think that confuses two things. In that situation, the second proceeding is in federal court. Yes. And in that federal court proceeding, you can take account of the prior state court conviction. But in that second proceeding, 
the fact that he was convicted previously in state court would have to have been found by the federal court. That's the relevant finding of recidivism. And in the absence of that finding of recidivism, the federal defendant wouldn't be subject to a felony sentence. He would only be subject to a, to a, a misdemeanor but sentence. Punish, the, 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 the crucial word here is punishable as a felony under the Controlled Substances Act. And the fact is, if indeed he's a recidivist, he could be punished for the for the felony. Now you're you're quite correct that the federal court would have to find the recidivism, but but that, but still he would be punishable as a recidivist. He he has to be convicted of a felony, Justice Scalia. And in the absence of a finding of recidivism, he can't have been convicted of the felony. He may be punishable as a felon in the abstract, ex ante. So I don't take issue with the proposition that a person commits recidivist possession when they commit possession and they have a prior conviction. In that abstract sense, the person has committed recidivist possession, and if they were charged and found to have been a recidivist, they, they would be convicted of recidivist possession. But in the absence of that finding, they haven't been convicted of recidivist possession. And the Un, cr- under the applicable state law, what's required before the recidivist um, uh, sentence is, is triggered? Is it a formal finding of recidivism by, the, by a jury? It, it doesn't have to be by a jury, and I think it would depend on the state, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be by a jury, because I think several states have the recidivism component of the offense as a finding that could be made by the court. And we've held that's okay. And you've held that's you okay as a constitutional matter. But we have but, five states, isn't it, that have no recidivist provisions? Th- there are. Uh, there, is, is the uh, thrust of your argument or the logical consequence of your argument, if you'd have one of those states with no recidivist provision, and you have Ten uh, separate possession convictions is still not a recidivist under the federal rules? It is in those five states, uh, Justice Kennedy, but I don't think that should give the court a great deal of pause for the following two reasons. No, no. In, in my hypothetical, what would happen uh, if, uh, if there was a deportation proceeding? What would happen is this. The person would not be categorically ineligible for discretionary relief. Because there's no recidivist fine. They wouldn't have been convicted of recidivist possession. But it's important to note, Justice Kennedy, that doesn't mean that those prior convictions don't enter into the picture at all. They do. Because in the exercise of discretion by the Attorney General, the Attorney General can take into account any prior convictions, including those that don't render somebody categorically ineligible. All we're talking about here is whether the person has a chance to make a discretionary case. They do have that chance in your honor's hypothetical, but those convictions would be taken into account. Now, I want to point out, though, that there's another reason that I think the fact that in that hypothetical it wouldn't render the defendant categorically ineligible for discretionary relief shouldn't give the court a great deal of pause. And that's because the relevant category of aggravated felony that we're talking about here is illicit trafficking in a controlled substance. That's the category that's outlined by the statute. Now, with respect to that category, Every state has trafficking laws. Every state punishes drug trafficking. So every state's offenses do count for purposes of this category of aggravated felony. When we're talking, that's the iceberg. The tip of the iceberg is recidivist possession, which is a subset of illicit trafficking in a controlled substance. Now, with respect to that tip, federal convictions for recidivist possession still do count. So we have those. With respect to the state. But the state prosecutors often prosecute when they have a recidivist provision under that, rather than the much more difficult illicit trafficking crime. I mean, if you're going to go to jail for a certain amount of years for a recidivist possession, that's easier to show than illicit trafficking. Well, sure. But if a state, uh, two, two responses, Mr. Chief Justice. If a state prosecutor does prosecute under an available recidivist possession offense, then that would count. 
because the state prosecutor would have brought the charge, the finding by hypothesis would have been made, and that would be felony recidivist possession under federal law, and there would be categorical ineligibility. Now, I think what may be, um, what may be sort of lurking beneath Your Honor's question is the recognition that the federal consequences of a state conviction are going to turn on state prosecutorial decisions. That's true. But that's a fixed feature of any scheme in which federal immigration consequences turns on what happens in state court. And this Court's decision in Lopez recognizes that. For example, states, several states don't have the federal offense of possession with intent to distribute drugs. That's a federal offense. What states, some states have instead, is possession with the degree of penalty attached to the amount of drugs possessed. They don't have the separate offense of possession with intent to distribute. Now, the fact that certain states don't have that offense doesn't mean that an individual who's convicted of state possession with no finding of an intent to, uh, to distribute would be a categorically ineligible for discretionary relief from removal, because what Congress understood was that some states will have qualifying offenses and some states won't. In those states that do, where the state has the offense and where the state prosecutor makes the decision to charge under that offense, well, at that point, the state conviction will count as a federal felony. It will be a, p- a felony punishable under the Controlled Substances Act, and the person at that point would be categorically ineligible for discretionary relief. I don't know. I'm, uh, I think it seems to me you go further than you need to. And, and moreover, imagine a state offense that just says uh, possession of marijuana zero to five years. Now, our problem is reading those words, is that or is that not analogous to a federal, a federal, what a federal law would make a felony? And suppose you discovered as a matter of fact that all the people who did have a prior conviction got more than a year. In simple possession, they got less than a year, which you'd have to do some research to find out. Right. Well, if those were the facts, I would say it is analogous to the federal felony where this person was sentenced to more than a year. I don't think it would be, Justice Breyer, because — Well, we could argue that one, but I don't see whether there's a line, because it seems to me the rule is set forth, we said in in the last sentence here of — what's the case, you know? uh, Lopez? What? Is it Lopez? Is that — Lopez. It says, a state offense constitutes a felony punishable under the Controlled Substances Act only if it proscribes conduct. So we're not looking at what happened in reality. We're reading some words from a state statute. Correct. That's what proscribes conduct, punishable as a felony under that federal law. This would be normal. We get some words in the state statute. And you have to decide, are the, those words cover some events in the world? And you look at those words, what the events they cover, and discover, did they or are they analogous or not analogous to what is a a felony under federal law? Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes it's not. You have a case, I think, that's easy. But I can imagine the case you're talking about, not easy. If you say, what do you do? I see no rule there. I see no rule, absolute, how you treat it. So I probably would treat it by trying to look at what really happens under this statute in the world. Well, I, well, with respect, Justice Breyer, I don't think that's the inquiry that's called for even by this sentence. I think what this sentence called for is an inquiry into what the state offense um, captures in its offense elements to make up a conviction. Mm-hmm. Why? Where so, does it say offense element? Because I think that's the, the, the necessary it inquiry. That's, it's, it's, it's necessarily what's at issue. It does, this sentence doesn't necessarily uh, — it, it asks well, whether — say what, where in it asks whether it prescribes it conduct. elements. It asks whether it prescri- — the, the sentence asks whether the state offense prescribes conduct. Yeah. And I read prescribes conduct to mean the, the offense elements. Why, well, you say conduct. that it says elements. I don't see any of our cases that say elements. 
And, and, I, and I think that, that what we could do is look to the conduct that's likely to be at issue under these State words, and if, in fact, it's regular that the State does punish people for more than a year when, in fact, they do possess for the third time, at least there'd be a good argument. No, I, Justice Breyer. Do you want to argue it doesn't count? Okay. I don't know why you do. I mean, I'm interested no, I, in why I, you do, I, since I, that isn't your case. Yeah, I, I don't want to take issue. I don't want to argue against myself, um, certainly. But I, I would just make the following point, that if I'm understanding what Your Honor is saying correctly, and I'm not sure that I am, but if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, I would just point out to the Court that the Court dealt with that sort of situation in the four corners of Lopez itself when it talked about, talks about what happens with uh, possession with intent to distribute. Some states don't have possession with intent to distribute as an offense. They only have possession. Now, as I understand what Your Honor is suggesting, you could look at all the, the, the ken of individuals who have been convicted of state possession, and you could ask, as a matter of fact, do they, in fact, possess with intent to distribute? And then you could reach some consequence uh, uh, on that basis. I don't, but, but I'm driving. The reason I ask my question is it seems to me your approach, which I think is consistent with Lopez and Nadijam, absolutely. Okay does raise the question you're talking about. So I want to know why are you talking about it, because I might be missing something. Because I don't think if I'm right, your case doesn't raise these issues. Or am I wrong about that? I, 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 I have to confess I'm not exactly sure what Your Honor is asking. Okay, well, uh, skip so the question. I, 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 well, could I, I, think, I ask you this then? Uh, could, could I? Um, uh, if, suppose a state makes simple possession a felony. Now, that doesn't make it a felony for these purposes, right? Right. All right. But in sentencing the, the, the defendant in state court for this felony, the, ju- the defendant concedes that he had a prior conviction, and the judge finds that and takes that into account in imposing the sentence. What would happen there? It wouldn't constitute the analogy to the federal offense of recidivist possession, Justice Alito, because that could also happen in the federal system. In the federal system, you could have an individual who's convicted of possession, and then the fact that they had a prior conviction could have some role in the, for example, in the pre-sentencing report. What's missing there? You don't what, have. What is the difference between that and and a situation where, just because of the vagary of state law, recidivism is something that has to be proven in order to bring the offense uh, into, the, uh, uh, into the felony level? Uh, two things that are missing, Justice Alito. First, you don't have a formal judgment of guilt entered by the court, which is what a conviction requires. And the consequence of not having the formal judgment of guilt is that the statutory maximum penalty isn't raised. And I think what's relevant here is that when you have a finding of a formal judgment of guilt of recidivism in the federal system, which happens when the prosecutor brings a charge and the court makes a finding at sentencing, the maximum sentence that uh, could be imposed against the defendant is raised from a misdemeanor sentence to a felony sentence. But that doesn't happen in a situation in which the fact of a prior conviction is taken into account, for example, under a pre-sentencing report. It doesn't raise the statutory maximum, and there's no formal judgment entered based on that determination by the court. And so that's the distinction. And I think the relevant way to look at it is you take, you take account of what would happen in the federal system, and you ask, would it have the consequence in the federal system of rendering somebody guilty of the felony of recidivist possession as opposed to the misdemeanor of simple possession. And it wouldn't in the federal system, and by parity of reasoning, it also would not have that consequence in the state system. Uh, that seems to be a totally formalistic distinction that's based on the, the vagaries of state law. What, what is the difference between someone who is 
found by a court under a state recidivism provision to have uh, to be eligible for an increased punishment uh, as a result of that finding and someone who uh, is found by a court in the context of sentencing, discretionary sentencing, to have a felony possession, uh, to have a prior uh, a prior conviction and receives an increased sentence as a result of that. What, what is the — is there any functional difference between those two situations? Well, I think there is, Justice Alito. And uh, let me just say, but as a preliminary matter, it's not based on the vagaries of state law because it's — I'm applying the same analysis to state convictions as I do to, to, to federal convictions. But one way to look at it is to ask, suppose that a state or even federal law made it salient for sentencing purposes whether somebody intended to distribute when they possessed. They're, they're convicted of drug possession. There is an offense of possession with intent to distribute, but they're not charged with that offense. They're charged with drug possession. And then sentencing somehow makes it salient, not for purposes of raising the statutory maximum, but just for purposes of sentencing within the range, whether the person intended to distribute. I don't think anybody would say that the individual was convicted of the felony of possession with intent to distribute because the, the, the judge in sentencing took into account an intent to distribute in some way under a, uh, under a sentencing scheme. But does it matter in that situation that that's an element? That has to be an element of the offense. It has to be a sentencing factor that raises the statutory maximum. And the reason that matters is that under this statute, the person has to have been convicted of a felony. And the only way they're convicted of a felony is the offense of which they're convicted can lead to a felony sentence. And the sentencing factor in this case of recidivism is necessary in order to give rise to a felony sentence. In the absence of that finding, the person has been convicted of a misdemeanor because the maximum sentence they can receive is a misdemeanor sentence of one year of imprisonment. If the Court has no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Srinivasan. Ms. Saharsky. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Congress's judgment here was that all aliens who engaged in the same serious conduct would be treated the same for immigration purposes. And Petitioner doesn't dispute that he has two convictions for drug possession. And he also doesn't dispute that had that second case been prosecuted in federal court, he could have been punished as a felon. What he's saying is, I don't want my aggravated felony to count because of a difference in state law, because of a difference in a state prosecutor's decision. But th- what this Court held in Lopez is that Congress's judgment controls about the seriousness of the offense. The exact words of Lopez, which I think are important, we hold that a state offense constitutes a felony punishable under controlled substance only if it proscribes conduct punishable as a felony, okay, yes. under federal law. Now, there's an ambiguity when you use a word like offense or crime. Sometimes you mean what this guy did, and sometimes you're referring to a statute. It's statutes that proscribe, not what this guy did. So we're talking about the statute. So what it tells us to do, and we said the same thing in Nijam, and I've written in other opinions, say the same thing. You go read the state statute. Forget what he's done. Read the statute and see if the statute proscribes conduct that would amount to a felony under federal law. So let us read the statute. We turn to the statute of conviction. What it says is it is a Class A misdemeanor for which you are punishable of less than a year if you possess less than 28 grams or whatever. It says nothing about recidivism. There is no increased punishment for recidivism. 
So all we did was read the statute. The statute does not proscribe conduct that would be a felony under Federal law. It proscribes conduct that would be a misdemeanor. QED. This person has not been punished in Texas under a statute that proscribes conduct that would be a felony under Federal law, end of case. Now, what is the matter with what I just said? Because this is a two-step inquiry, and you only did step one. What do you mean a two-step inquiry? A two-step inquiry. There are two questions. The first is, does the State offense correspond to an offense under the CSA? Does it correspond to a Federal offense? And that's based on the elements, and the Court said that that was based on the elements in it, on page 51 of its okay, opinion okay. in Nijman. But there's a second question, which is, if it corresponds to a Federal offense, how would that Federal offense be punishable? The punishable under the CSA language determines that we need to look at that second inquiry. It no. is an addition what, what, to that. What, what, where does it say that? Where does it say that in the language? You are looking to the conduct that the statute proscribes, not what he engaged in. Suppose the State statute says it is a misdemeanor to steal a chicken. Okay? Yes. It is a misdemeanor. He is convicted of stealing a chicken. It turns out that the way he stole the chicken was to burn down the farmhouse. That is a felony. Now, what we have written is forget the second. I've written it in five opinions or four or three, most of which had a majority. It is called uh, — it is, it is written right here in this case. It is written in the Jihan. What is it that tells us to go beyond the conduct that the State statute proscribes, not some other thing? The conduct is what the State statute prescribes, but there's an additional question of how it is Here is the additional question. Read me the words of the statute. There might be. I'm not — I'm being argumentative, but I want to know what words in the statute say there is — or what words in a case say go look to some other thing beyond what the State statute proscribes. Okay. This is on the gray brief, page 10A, and this is the definition that's incorporated into the aggravated felony definition in the INA. And it says that it encompasses, quote, any felony punishable under the Controlled Substances Act. Mm -hmm. And in Lopez, the Court interpreted that language to mean an offense that is punishable as a felony under the Controlled Substances Act. What offense? The offense prescribed by state law. That's why I ask you, where does the state statute proscribe something that has to do with recidivism? I've read that state statute three or four times. Recidivism isn't part of the offense. It is a sentencing factor. Justice Scalia mentioned that. That's something this Court has recognized on many occasions, that recidivism is something that can be established by the sentencing court. You're right. The offense is drug possession. He was convicted of drug possession in state court. That's what he would have been convicted of in federal court. But the fact that he was convicted of drug possession doesn't answer the separate question of how that offense is punishable. If it were his first offense, it would be punishable as a misdemeanor. If it was his second offense, it would be punishable as a felony. And we think that that, that approach is dictated by two different opinions, the first of which is Lopez, which says we look for a correspondence between the state offense and the federal offense, but then we also have this question of how the offense is punishable in federal court. And this punishability question is extremely relevant. The entire basis for the court's the entire basis for the court's opinion was that Congress's judgment about the seriousness of the offense controls. It is not state by state. Do we take into account at all? I mean, in in Lopez, as I understand it, the petitioner prevailed because 
would not have been a felony under the federal law. Is that right? Yes. Uh, here we're talking about two crimes. One is a, a small amount of marijuana gets 20 days in jail. The other is uh, a pill that I never heard of, a Zan something, and they gets what, 10 days in jail for that. And if you could just present this scenario to an intelligent person who didn't go to law school, you're going to not only remove him from this country, but say never, ever darken our doors again because of one marijuana cigarette and one Zan something pill. It just, it just seems to me that if there's a way of reading the statute that would not lead to that absurd result, you would want to read the statute. If you're forced to read it because there's no other way, uh, but maybe there is another way. We don't think that there is another way, because the Court said in Lopez in interpreting the statutory language that the State's judgment about how an offense is punished does not control what controls is Congress's judgment. And Congress has taken a hard line over the past 20 years on criminal aliens, particularly recidivist criminal Can you aliens, tell me what, what, what would happen um, if there — forget the State. There are two Federal offenses. Uh, the first Federal offense, a drug possession. Second Federal offense — Drug possession, but the prosecutor is not quite sure that he has a strong case or she has a strong case uh, for recidivism because of the first conviction. So the, 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 on the second go-around, the conviction is without the added finding of recidivism. What does the INA do with that case? That would count as an aggravated felony, as punishable as a felony, because the aggravated felony language incorporates the word punishable, how it could be treated under federal law, not how it actually was punished. And that's because Congress made a, a judgment in the Immigration Code that what it wanted to do was to take all individuals who had been engaged in the same conduct. So you're telling us that what, what, something's what, 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 not a federal felony, and it's now subject because he hasn't been convicted in federal court of recidivism. Now he's being punished in, under the INA or removed under the INA for what is not a felony under federal law. Because it's punishable, yes, because it's punishable as a felony under federal law, because Congress made a judgment that those two drug possession offenses, the fact of recidivism makes it serious enough that it enough that could it Could I just punished. ask you one well, if, if, I, if I could just finish on this, this one, this one. <laughs> Uh, in, in this hypothetical that we're, we're discussing, the, the, the two federal offenses, but no finding of recidivism, uh, does the INA uh, have the authority to uh, question the uh, first conviction uh, because it was uncounseled or, in effect, collaterally question uh, the first conviction? It's well established that those kind of challenges can't be brought in immigration court. What needs to happen is they need to be brought in the state court of conviction through the oh, procedures. Well, there are no, our, our hypothetical here is federal. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Right. In that case, if it uh, — the individual would need to seek relief in federal court in terms of — I thought in the, if it's in the federal court and the, the, they're going to use it as a recidivist defense, a — the defendant is notified of that, and B, is given an opportunity to say there's something infirm about that first conviction. That's totally absent 
from this picture and you say, oh, well, that's just a matter of procedure, so he doesn't have to get that any place. Uh, I think that uh, Congress is requiring that. It's, it's certainly an element of fundamental due process, fairness, notice, and opportunity to say, you know, the first conviction shouldn't count. With respect, we disagree because Congress made different judgments in the immigration context and in the criminal context. Immigration is very different from criminal proceedings. This Court has said that on numerous occasions. The rights in terms of due process and counsel and the like are very different. And in immigration, Congress made a categorical judgment that individuals who have been convicted of conduct should all be treated the same and that they all should be removed from the United States and should be, not be able to get a discretionary relief. In the criminal sentencing context, which you're talking about, Section, the, Section 851 procedures, Congress made a judgment that those procedures, which have criminal consequences and already are individualized, that there would be this notice provision. But that provision, Congress did not apply anywhere in the immigration laws. It, it would, and if you look all — you go ahead. I was just going to say, if you look all through the aggravated felony provisions, they're in our brief. There are 21 of them. For none of those provisions was Congress concerned about notice or the like. It said the individual has engaged in this conduct that we think is serious. But my Criminal point is, that if it all happened in the federal court, if these two uh, possession offenses all happened in the federal court at the time of the second one, the, def- the defendant would have gotten the notice and the opportunity to knock it out. I'm not talking about immigration, but just, and he doesn't have that opportunity uh, the, the way you treat it. He doesn't, didn't get that in the state court because nobody thought that this was a recidivist offense in the state court. That's right, and that's because Congress made the decision to have those types of notice procedures in criminal proceedings, but they're not applicable by their terms anywhere in the immigration laws. And just to make sure that I understand the hypotheticals that you and Justice Kennedy have been talking about, if there is a federal prosecution and the person has sought to challenge the validity of his conviction and it's been proven to be invalid, then in that case, yes, there would be a, a question whether that conviction could be used in the immigration proceedings. There is an entire body of law that when a conviction has been vacated, it doesn't count as a conviction under the immigration proceedings. So the answer is, if it is a person in state court and they think that there's a problem with their underlying conviction, they need to go to state court or use whatever procedures are available for challenging that. But again, the court has said on numerous occasions, prior convictions are presumed valid. We do not see. Do we do know in a, a practically both on the state side and the federal side, do prosecutors uh, presented with simple possession cases, do they, do we ever see in real life this combination that somebody's going to be um, convicted as a recidivist when it's one marijuana cigarette and one time and then one pill on another? Do prosecutors, federal or state, do that? I, I can't speak to state prosecutors. I know there are circumstances in which federal prosecutors do it, although, quite honestly, most of the federal drug prosecutions regard uh, the more serious drug crimes. The persons that come to our attention usually can be charged with at least possession with intent to distribute or um, drug trafficking or something like that. And when we do charge them with possession, it's usually because they've pleaded down and we've agreed not to give them that enhanced sentence. But the, the judgment here is the one that Congress made about whether two drug possessions is serious, serious enough to qualify as a felony. Can and I Congress ask you a, a related question, which will show mm-hmm. what I'm trying, another thing that's worrying me. Suppose we're in the Armed Career Criminal Act. Now, I have, this is my hypothetical. You've heard of cat burglars? 
Well, this gentleman is called the pussycat burglar, and the reason is he's never harmed a soul. He only carries soft pillows as weapons. If he sees a child, he gives them ice cream. It is absolutely established that this person, in breaking into that house at night, only wanted to steal a pop gun, and he is the least likely to cause harm in the world. Question. He is convicted of burglary. Is that a crime of violence? Answer. Well, to the extent that the burglary definition depends on the Court's modified categorical approach, you just look to see what he had been convicted of and not the individual Correct. circumstances. Correct. The answer case. is, of course, because we are not looking to whether he's the pussycat burglar or the cat burglar. We are to look to the statute of <laughs> conviction and see what it is that that behavior forbids, the statute forbids. Lewis, Nijahan, say do precisely the same thing with this part of that long list. Indeed, Nijaham lists this provision as an example of what you would do the same thing for. Now, I'm back to my first question. Let's do it. Read the Texas statute. And where in that Texas statute does it say a word about recidivism or punish that conduct? Now, if I adopt your position, am I not? Not simply overturning Lewis and Nijaha, but getting a very mixed-up area of the law, which we've tried to straighten out. Taylor, ACCA, once again totally mixed up. That's my concern. With respect, I think that our position is entirely consistent and, in fact, follows from Lopez and Nijuan and is consistent with the Court's modified categorical approach. So let me just talk about Lopez and Nijuan because I want to make sure there's not any confusion about that. Lopez said that we have a question here about whether the state offense, and a state offense is made up of here drug possession. Recidivism isn't something that you're convicted of. It's a sentencing factor. You look at the state offense and you see does it correspond to a federal offense. Here it does. There is state drug possession. There is federal drug possession. And then you ask another question. And this Court said in Lopez that that's an important question we care about what Congress thought, which is, how is this offense punishable under federal law? This is a two-part inquiry where the first part, the offense elements, does need to be established in state court, and the second part, which goes to how it is punishable, does not need to be established in state court. Now, that's exactly what the courts recognized in its opinion in Nijuan. Under the federal statute, it's only punishable for recidivism purposes if the prior conviction was valid. Because as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, the statute permits a defendant to object. Who has the burden of proof of proving validity is irrelevant. It's not punishable as recidivism unless the prior conviction was valid, constitutionally valid. So why isn't that same standard or proof thereof required either in the state conviction under your under uh, any theory or by the IJ. The IJ fails to make that finding. How has he and on what basis has he ruled that there was a valid prior conviction? 
What makes an offense punishable as a felony under the Federal Controlled Substances Act is contained in Section 844, which defines the substantive punishments available. It says that drug possession is punishable as a felony in certain circumstances. And this Court in Lopez, particularly in footnote 6, recognized that repeat drug possession qualifies as punishable as a felony and under the CSA. But only and under only a process that requires notice. Well, this is what's interesting. Is, I'm sorry. Um, what's interesting is that the Court cited for the, the, this provision, Section 844A, which defines the substantive penalties available. It didn't cite, no one thought was relevant, Section 851, which defines procedures that happen after a conviction to impose a certain punishment. So what we're talking about are these procedures that are necessary, and it's not a finding of a valid conviction. It's, it's a long set of procedures. There doesn't necessarily need to be a finding of a valid conviction if the defendant doesn't object at all. There's burden shifting. It's very complicated. Congress did not apply it to the immigration code by its terms. It's not applicable to the states by its terms. What the Court said in Lopez in saying in footnote 6, the recidivist possession counts as punishable under the CSA, it pointed to Section 844, which defines the penalties available, and not anything about procedures. And even Counsel, you would suggest then that even if a prior state court conviction was secured without the advice of counsel, that would qualify as a federal offense of recidivism. So let's assume this case that in neither the conviction for the one marijuana stake or the conviction for the one sleeping pill, that if those convictions were secured without the advice of counsel, that would be enough to qualify him as a recidivist under the federal law. Well, that, that raises a very narrow question that, so far as we're aware, has never been addressed in the immigration context, which is whether there could be a proceeding to challenge the narrow question of a conviction obtained in the complete absence of counsel. This Court said in Custis that there, even though there is a very broad general rule that prior convictions are presumed valid, that in one narrow situation, the complete absence of counsel, that a due process type challenge could be brought. Now, that question has never been raised in this case, whether such a challenge could be brought in immigration proceedings despite the general rule that there are no such collateral challenges. But that is a different rule and a different body of jurisprudence from this Court, the due process body, as opposed to importing all of the very complicated Section 851 procedures into uh, the, the, um, the, the inquiry here. And just to get back to the could, it, could a defendant whose prior conviction was under a state recidivism statute claim that that conviction was invalid because that defendant was at that time deprived of the right of counsel. Do you see a difference between that situation and the situation in which, and the situation in the, the sort of case we have here with respect to the issue of whether the prior conviction was invalid because of the deprivation of the right of counsel? Yes, I think that they're potentially distinguishable. But, you know, this, this is just not a question that's ever come up in the immigration context. It would be a special rule that would be based on the Court's decision, we think, in Custis, and not anything about punishable referring to Section 851. Why are they distinguishable? You could, ha- you can challenge, you could, uh, a, a person faced with removal could challenge a prior conviction on the ground that there was a deprivation of the right of counsel, whether or not it was, uh, pursuant to uh, a recidivism, whether or not there was a recidivism issue in it, couldn't, couldn't they? 
Yes, but I think recidivism, I think there's some confusion in the Court's um, discussion, perhaps, that recidivism is not an element of the offense. You're never convicted of recidivism. You're convicted of an offense. And you might be subject to an increased punishment for that offense because you are a recidivist. And that's essentially what Petitioner wants here, is to define the state court offense as having an element of recidivism. But there's one thing that's clear from this Court's jurisprudence to this point, is that recidivism is separate and unique from anything else that, that what, what, might. What case do I read to establish that? The recidivism is separate and unique. Right. Um, Almendarez-Torres would be one. The Court's decision in Rodriguez would be well, another. Well, but uh, Almendarez-Torres was a different offense, was it not? I mean, th- th- this is this is a drug offender who is — it's not like a burglar who stops burglary and takes up a new trade. Uh, th- this is this is a, a drug offender who continues to repeat under the drug offense laws. And I, I thought the position was that this shows uh, — a particular propensity, a particular immoral attitude that's not being corrected, and so that the recidivism makes him a worse person. Well, what this Court said in Rodriguez generally about recidivist punishments is you're always being punished for the last offense, but you're being punished more severely because it's shown that incapacitation and deterrence isn't working for you. So that's what was worrying me. That's why I asked the other question. But the, the, uh, what was worrying me would be a statute where they th- it, it's big enough in the state to cover possession with recidivism or not, and they deal with it at the punishment stage. And I can see your point in respect to that. But that isn't this statute. This statute not only doesn't deal with it at the punishment stage, it's forbidden to take it into account because what this says is you can only get recidivism if you uh, previously had a conviction for a Class A misdemeanor and the prior conviction here was a Class B. And and therefore, one thing we know about statute is that under this statute, his behavior as a recidivist is as close to irrelevant as you could make it. That's why I'm back to the cat burglar. Right. And what I'm, what I'm suggesting about that state statute is that, and this Court said this in Lopez, that Congress didn't want those variations in state law to change the treatment for individual offenders. What it wanted, and it did this in the aggravated felony provisions all throughout them, is to identify categories of persons who'd done certain conduct that Congress thought was serious enough and treat them all the same for immigration purposes. And the Court said in Lopez, we're not going to make the way that state law treats recidivism, or so we're not going to make the way state law treats an offense, change the outcome. The outcome is going to be based on how federal law treats the offense. And that's why, to get back to one of my earlier answers to your questions, we think that this Court's decision in Nijuan is extremely important here, because what the Court recognized in that decision is that Congress, in defining an aggravated felony, sometimes talks about required elements of the offense, and it sometimes talks about extra facts that can be established in the immigration court. In Nijuan, there was a fraud or deceit offense with this extra fact of this lost amount of $10,000 or more. And Congress did the same thing in this provision. There it did? Well, Nijuam uses this provision as an example of where it did. Well, th- we think that that refers to the first part of the definition. There are actually two parts of the definition. This is, I think, on page um, right at the beginning of the appendix to our brief. Um, if you look, this is page 1A of the gray brief. You know, there are two different parts here in um, 43B. There is illicit trafficking in a controlled substance, including a drug trafficking crime as defined in Section 924C. Right. So this, this first part, illicit trafficking, is like a generic burglary type 
offense where you need to just look at whether the essentially elements correspond under a modified categorical approach. But then the second part of it, the drug trafficking crime, is the one that's defined as a felony punishable under the Controlled Substances Act. And when you look at a felony punishable under the Controlled Substances Act, which this Court interpreted in Lopez as a, an offense that is punishable as a felony under federal law. It is just like Nijuan. It is an offense with a certain extra fact. In Nijuan, it was a broader may, may deceit I offense. You, because time is running out. Um, I take it your answer would be the same. Uh, these, these two uh, misdemeanors were committed a year apart. But if they were 10 years apart, your answer would still be the same. Yes, and I think that's because Congress has said when it wants the, the timing to matter. For example, in the end of the aggravated felony definitions, Congress said it didn't want felony convictions that were more than 15 years old to matter. You know, Congress, when it wants something old not to matter, it says so in older convictions. So we don't think that there would be a difference for that purpose. So I, I just want to make sure I've answered the question. You know, we just think that this is like that situation where you have a conviction for a certain type of offense, which here is drug possession, and an extra fact, how it's punishable in federal court. And that extra fact can be established in immigration court. It's not the kind of thing that this Court has said under Almendarez-Torres needs to be treated like an offense element. I should note that, and this is a point you made, um, Justice Breyer, that there was not a recidivist enhancement available in Texas court. Justice Kennedy, that just highlights some of the problems that you identified in terms of the wide variations that we would see in how similarly situated people who've done the same things to drug possession offenses would be treated differently under the immigration laws. And that's just not what Congress intended. We talk in our brief, and there's a long list of differences in state laws, not only in the state procedures, which vary widely from federal court, but in the state laws in terms of, you know, if you can consider a second possession offense for recidivist enhancement or only a third or fourth, whether the first offense has to be final, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That there, these differences would just lead to a, a patchwork application of the immigration laws. And if there's any place where we don't want that, it's, it's in immigration with respect to immigration. There, there was another crime, I thought, a more serious crime that was still a misdemeanor um, in this picture. But the Texas prosecutor um, didn't make anything of that. Remind me of what that was, but I thought it was a, a a more grave offense. Uh, you might be thinking of his prior offense for domestic violence, that yes. that might have been able to be used to, to enhance his, um, his drug crime to an enhanced sentence, but that there wasn't an enhancement sought on that. Yeah, that, that was a, a 2003 conviction. So we respect that judgment on the part of the prosecutor not to make it uh, of ground for a recidivist charge, but we don't respect um, the prosecutor, Texas prosecutor, said, I'm going to just treat this like it's a first-time misdemeanor. That's it. In, in neither case does the prosecutor's judgment matter. What matters is the offense conduct that was established by the conviction in state court. What matters is the offense that the person was convicted of and if that corresponds to a federal offense that was punishable as a felony in federal court. It is true that some charges may be brought and some charges may not be brought, and that would impact what a person has been convicted of. So there could be some disparities based on that. But what Congress decided was that it had to balance its need for uniformity with a rule that is administrable. And the rule that it picked was administrable is, let's look at the offense conduct that was established by the conviction. And when you look at that offense conduct, you have to ask how it could be punished in federal court. And it's that punishable language that requires this more hypothetical inquiry and how the events, how the offense could be treated. 
And, and just to summarize, it, it, it's clear from the last 20 years that Congress has had a very serious concern about recidivist criminal aliens in the United States. And Congress has made a judgment since 1970 in the drug laws that two drug possession offenses should be punishable as a felony. And under those circumstances, a person who conceitedly has committed those two drug offenses and who conceitedly, if taken to federal court, could have been punished as a felony, just should not be able to escape the aggravated felony designation that Congress intended for all aliens who are similarly situated. If the Court has no further questions, we submit to the judgment below should be affirmed. Thank you, Ms. Saharsky. Uh, Mr. Srinivasan, you have four minutes remaining. We we usually think of recidivism when we talk about statistics as being repeated for any crime. This is a recidivism of the special kind. It's it's repeating the same as the same event. Is is that essential to your argument? I know it's essential to the to the federal statute. Right, and, and because it's essential to the federal statute, it's necessarily a part of our argument. I, I don't think our argument would be any different if the federal statute read differently. But you can only be punishable as a felon under federal law if you had a prior drug conviction and if you had a prior drug conviction that was, in fact, found to exist. And I think, Justice Kennedy, the first point I'd like to make in rebuttal, there's two points I'd like to make. The first addresses a question you raised concerning what happens in a situation in which the second proceeding is a federal proceeding rather than a state proceeding. And I think this is important to highlight the government's response, because if the second proceeding is a federal proceeding, we have a person who has a prior conviction for drug possession. We have a person who's then prosecuted in federal court for a second time for drug possession. The prosecutor, by hypothesis, never brings the initial conviction into play. The court, therefore, never finds that the person is a recidivist. As a consequence, that person cannot, as a matter of law, receive a felony sentence. They can only be sentenced as a misdemeanor. But nonetheless, the government would say that they have been, quote, convicted of a felony punishable under the Controlled Substances Act, close quote, how even you, though no felony sentence could be imposed. How do you distinguish Nisha uh, one? I mean, there. What made it a federal felony was the fact that uh, more than $10,000 was uh, obtained from the victims. But that was not found in the, in the uh, state conviction. It simply was not. There were, there were two things that made it a federal felony, uh, Justice Scalia. First was that it had to be an offense that involved fraud. That's right. And, then, and, and that had to be found by the convicting court. There was right. no issue about that. No Our, issue. Our point is that. Well, what about the $10,000? He the was never convicted of having uh, 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 obtained by fraud more than $10,000 from the victim. But, but there's a very important textual distinction, Justice Scalia, because under the provision at issue in Nishawan, the offense had to involve fraud, and then there was a separator in which the loss exceeds $10,000. And the court focused on the fact that the text read in which. That was critical. And another thing that was critical in Nishawan was that if you looked at federal statutes and asked, were there any that as to which the elements would require a loss in excess of $10,000, there were none. And because of that practical consequence, the court reached the conclusion that Congress would have intended that the $10,000 be something that the immigration judge could have found. We have the opposite situation here. You still had the word convicted, which is what we're relying on. That word was applicable there as much as it's applicable here, and we did not require him to have been convicted of having obtained more than $10,000. Because, again, the, test, the text also had in which, which the Court found critical, that text is lacking here, and because the statute would have had no practical consequence absent the Court's well, interpretation. Well, that's, that's, that's not true heard. here. Because he, she got to that argument at the end, and she said, my, the, my, uh, I wrote that, I think, and I, when I used as an example, or the text uses as an example, this provision is one where you don't look to real conduct. She said, that was a mistake, really. Uh, it was overstated, because it's, it's, what they're saying is that recidivism 
analogous to the $10,000, was meant to be a real conduct aspect, not just offensive conviction. And she gave similar reasons. That's why similar reasons are that the States are too mixed up in this. It will be too difficult to look that element, et cetera. So she's trying to analogize that to the $10,000. Now, why isn't that a good analogy? Because for both reasons that the Court found that you could look to the circumstances in Nijhawan, neither of those two reasons applies here. You don't have a textual separator. You don't have the words in which. All you have is the word convicted. And you also don't have the consequence that the provision would cease to have any practical implications under our reading. It would absolutely have practical implications under our reading, because any time a person was found to have been a recidivist and their sentence was raised, their maximum sentence was raised as a consequence, they will have been deemed to have been an aggravated felon. But here, that didn't happen. You'd have to understand that in the Federal system, even though an individual could not, as a matter of law, be sentenced as a felon, they nonetheless would have been deemed to have been convicted of a felony. And at the very least, and this is the second point I'd like to make, if I could just make your second point. Sure. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Principles of lenity, which the government agrees are potentially applicable here, would dictate ruling in our favor, even if you thought that the text was ambiguous. Principles of lenity do apply. An individual who pleads guilty to possession in exchange for a prosecutor's decision to refrain from charging him as a recidivist and therefore could only be sentenced as a misdemeanor, I think should be allowed to be convinced that he has been convicted of a misdemeanor rather than a felony. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.